Snap Studios. Step Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Here it is. You've got the best seat in the house. Snap Judgment's Storytelling with the Beat is about to rock our biggest live show ever at Brooklyn's Academy of Music. Lights. Camera. Action. Okay, so, I was 14 years old, and um, it was Friday night, and all my buddies were out running them streets, doing crazy stuff, but not the Washington household. We were on lockup. That's what Dad called Friday night Bible devotionals. Not too pleased. And right then, Devotional consisted of studying the assorted works of Herbert W. Armstrong, our pastor and apostle, an apostle. Again, but there had been a disturbance in the force. You see, Herbert W. Armstrong said that the end time was imminent. Jesus' return was imminent. People running crazy. It was, What's that, what's that mean? 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 What does that mean? And so that night at the devotional, I asked my father, what does imminent mean? And Pop said, son, the good news is that you will never grow old. Never be decrepit. For real? You, son, will never have to work from sunup to sundown for your family. It's getting better and better. But, son, you will never feel the touch of a woman. Son, are you ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? Welcome. Snap Judgment, baby! Ah! What y'all know about this Woo!
welcome to the Snap Judgment Show. Thanks, everybody, for coming out here tonight, New York. How you doing, Brooklyn? Where you at, Brooklyn? I gotta tell you, we are so delighted, are we not, to be here today. To the world's finest storytellers that have come to this stage. But before that happens, may I introduce you to my brother in crime? Please say hello to Mr. Alice Mandel. Best in the business. On the base, Tim Fred, Tim Fred, Tim Fred. Band is no joke, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just the players. This next guest, our next guest is funny. And she makes me laugh. Every time I look at this woman, she's saying something to make me laugh. And that's really why we brought her to, she's a, she makes me laugh. That's why she's here on the snap stage, because she's funny, and you guys get to be laugh with me. She travels the world making other people laugh. Today she's going to make you laugh. Laughter. Please bring her to the stage. <laughs> Please bring her out here. Where is she? Jen Colbert. Yay! Well, I guess I have to be funny now. When I was 10 years old, more than anything in the world, I wanted to be a Girl Scout. But you have to be 12 to be a Girl Scout. So I was a brownie. I didn't know such a thing existed. Imagine my fat kid delight when I found out I'd be gathering with other girls my age, also called brownies. This was the best that had ever happened to me. It was beautiful. And then one day, my mom announces she's gonna be our troop leader. thing that ever happened to me was about to be taken over by Stephanie. That's her name, Stephanie. And she ruins everything good. I was distraught. I didn't know what to do. And then a week later, Stephanie comes in and announces to the troop, we're going to be selling Girl Scout cookies. What? I didn't even know there were going to be cookies involved. It's now still the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. When I was a kid, there were only four 
kinds of Girl Scout cookies. Today, there are 17. Four. Four. There was the Lorna Dune cookie. Shortbread. Very plain, very simple. I don't know who Lorna Dune was, but the made a tasty cookie. Same shortbread cookie, covered in peanut butter, dunked in chocolate. Thank you, Jesus. Delicious. There is the thin mint. Which I think we can all agree should be eaten straight out of the freezer. Yes. What a lot of people don't realize is that that habit was actually created by a skinny <laughs> Yeah. She bought a box of Thin Mint cookies and thought, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to eat all of these at once. <laughs> what am I going to do? How will they stay fresh? And then her mom told her to put them in the freezer. And then her fat friend came over and said, don't you have anything to eat in this damn house? The skinny girl pulls cookie from the freezer. Fat girl eats them and is happy. You're welcome. That's how that happened. greatest penultimate champion Girl Scout cookie of the world is the Samoa. It is a ring of shortbread cookie covered in caramel, toasted coconut, striped with fudge. It is to be put on your finger like a ring and eaten into a smaller ring. I like to put one on each finger and eat them in rapid succession. And then whichever finger first got another cookie. Now I don't know if you know this about Girl Scout cookies, But there is a release date. You don't just order the cookies and they show up. There's a day that all Girl Scout cookies cross the globe, I imagine, (laughs) are released all at the same time. I imagine there's one really old Girl Scout who just screams, release the cookies! Stephanie being our troop leader is really going to pay off. Because we had to hold on to the cookies until the release date. And my parents had an air-conditioned garage. My dad's a heart surgeon. 
inside my garage for 17 days, there were four flats of Girl Scout cookies. Stacked 12 boxes high. And inside each box were 10 more boxes high. Six boxes wide, four boxes deep. My whole life had been preparing me for this moment. I had planned in my little head how I was going to eat as many cookies as I could and I had 17 days to do it. I thought long and hard about this, people. We had an alarm system on our house. So every time you opened a door or window, it would beep, letting, letting you know a door or window had been opened. And my mother could hear that beep like a hawk. So I had to figure out exactly when the beep happened so that I could somehow muffle it when I was going to sneak into the garage to eat the cookies. I'd spent the better part of that day opening and closing the garage door over and over again. My mother almost beat the shit out of me. But I figured out that if you just opened the doorknob, the beep didn't happen until the seal was broken between the frame and the door. So I would open the doorknob and then just (coughs) (coughs) You couldn't just cough once No one coughs just once You have to remember to trail off the cough I would sneak down the stairs Very ninja-like While everyone was asleep And then I would just rest the door against the latch so that it wouldn't beep again. (laughs) I turned the lights in the garage on their dimmest setting. Romantic. (laughs) And I would make my way past the cars, around the bicycles, where the cookies were. Armed with my library card, which I used to slit open the box, I pulled from the bottom, replaced at the top. I would get the box, again, slitting it open with my library card. Pull it out, very gingerly opening the cellophane so as not to tear it. I would then eat every single cookie in the box. Lick my finger and get out the crumbs so that the package was completely empty. Then I'd whip out my glue stick I was only 10, ma'am, but I was reading at a sixth grade level. I 
glued the cellophane shut, put more glue on the flap of the package, and put the empty box back into the bigger box. Because you see, my story was going to be, if I was caught, they sent us empty boxes. <laughs> Things go wrong at factories. I snuck down and ate cookies every single night for 17 days. It wasn't even enjoyable at the end. You know how freaking thirsty you get? Cookie after cookie after cookie, and you couldn't just eat a few. The whole box had to go. One night, I couldn't take it anymore. On my way back up the stairs, I stopped in the kitchen and started chugging milk like it was my fucking job. My dad came down and caught me chugging milk. What's wrong? He asked. I had, a, I had a coughing spell. I don't know if you heard <laughs> me coughing, but I'm, I think I'm okay now. And I went to bed. And on the 18th day, the day that the cookies are to be <laughs> my mother calls me into the garage. And I can tell this isn't a pep sales talk. <laughs> Stephanie is mad. <laughs> she calls me by my full name. Jennifer Lee Cobra, get your fat little ass in here. Come here. Come here. I want you to stand right here. Come here. I want you to stand right here. Come here. I'm not going to hurt you. Come here. Child, did you eat 144 boxes of cookies? Did you? Is that what you did? Don't you lie to me. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you, what do you mean? The, the, the boxes are sealed. How, how could I have eaten 144 boxes of cookies? And then she held up my library card. That apparently in my cookie drunkenness, I had left inside the last box of cookies. I took a licking for every one of those cookies. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I realized who the real victims were in this story. It's those 144 people in Memphis, Tennessee who never got their cookies. All they wanted 
was deliciousness. They waited and they waited and that's all they wanted. And I hope that one day I'm rich and famous enough to put all those 144 people on a bus and drive them to that Girl Scout cookie factory in the sky. Salvation and Samoas for all. What did I tell you? Did I speak the truth? Snappers, we have the best news because the woman you just heard, the funniest person on the planet, Jen Kober, returns to Snap Judgment Live with an all new story that will rock your world. Friday, November 16th in Mesa, Arizona, and Saturday, November 17th at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Join us for the laughs, the tears, the joy, the funk, the magic. Get tickets at snapjudgment.org. It's our biggest and baddest show ever. Friday, November 16th in Mesa, Arizona, and Saturday, November 17th in downtown Los Angeles. New cities added to the Snap Judgment World Tour on the daily. Now, in just a moment, the most shocking wedding of all time. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment Live in New York. Now, our next story does deal with some adult issues. Sensitive listeners should know, but know this as well. This is a truly amazing performance. We're going to join this show already in progress. Snap Judgment. Live in New York. And now I get to bring out a veteran. Someone who was on this stage from day one, actually on our very first Snap Judgment episode. He is now a man who's busy changing the world, one bad guy at a time, a rebel without a pause, uh, fighting a man for the good of everybody else. He's a dear friend of mine. Please put your hands together for Mr. Josh Healy. There's a famous story in my family. When my parents got married, there were two family members who were supposed to be kept as far apart from each other as possible. <laughs> my great-grandmother, Barbara, and my other great-grandma, Henrietta. Barbara and Henrietta, two little old Jewish ladies, two feisty, powerful giants, each standing tall at four foot ten in a bushka and heels. And they were supposed to be kept as far apart from each other as possible, but there was a mix-up at the reception, and somehow they got seated at the same table. 
And when they did, they proceeded to play every immigrant's favorite game, Who's Had a Tougher Life? Barbara came out swinging. She said, well, uh, you know that my family, we had to uh, flee Russia when I was five because the army came and burned down our whole village. Henrietta was like, all right, we're going to fight. Let's play. <laughs> Henrietta's like, oh, yeah, well, the boat my family came over on, it was so bad, my little sister almost died before we got to Ellis Island. Barbara, she comes back flexing. She's like, oh, yeah? Yeah, that's all you got, son? Uh, and obviously, this is how immigrant Jewish women talk, uh, like bad battle rappers, straight out of the shtetl. Uh, she's like, yeah? Uh, well, uh, you know, I had to drop out of school when I was 12 to work at a sweatshop on the Lower East Side. Henrietta's like, I wish I worked at a sweatshop. <laughs> My whole family was unemployed during the Depression. We survived 10 years off Spam and matzo balls. No soup, just the matzo balls. <laughs> and by this point, a whole crowd has formed around all the families at the table, even my newlywed parents, they want to see the heavyweight bout. It's Ali versus Frazier. It's Nas versus Jay-Z. It's Barbara Rosenblum versus Henrietta Goldblatt. And Barbara goes in for the knockout punch. She stands on top of her chair and in front of 150 guests at the party of my parents' wedding, shouts out, I had 12 abortions. All self-performed. <laughs> and that's the story that popped into my head when my girlfriend told me she was pregnant. And I'm not proud <laughs> that that was the first thing that popped into my head. But given what happened next, it was kind of crazy. I was 19 years old, a sophomore in college. So I was smart enough to know that when your girl tells you she's pregnant, the first sentence out your mouth should probably not contain the word abortion. <laughs> so instead, I went for something far more sensitive uh, and mature. When she told me, I was like, uh, for real? <laughs> like, for real, for real? You sure you're not just a little late? She said, I don't think so. It's been 15 days. Uh, 15 days? Man, I know nothing about women's bodies. <laughs> but I thought I would be able to notice if she was preggers. Like, she smelled different. Maybe like applesauce. <laughs> or every time she breathed, there'd be a little more air coming out. <laughs> you know? Her name was Esther. We'd been together for six months. And I said I love you to her every night. But I also said I love you every night to my couch. So I wasn't really sure what this was. 
Well, I say, there's only one way to find out. We go to the store, come back, and before I know it, I'm looking at this pregnancy test I just bought at Walgreens for less than a super burrito. I open the box, the cardboard cracking like thunder. I'm 19. I can't even legally have a drink to celebrate if it comes out positive. I mean negative. I mean we go to the bathroom together. It's the first time I've seen a woman pee. It feels like she's going on forever. Like she's been storing the Pacific in her bladder for just this moment. Finally, the trickle stops. She hands me the stick, eyes closed. You look. Ladies first, I say. She does. She takes a breath. Looks like I'm going to be drinking for two from now on. I'm pregnant. For real, I say. For real, for real, she says, picking up her pants. So what should we do? And I know what I'm supposed to say, right? I'm supposed to say something supportive and strong and sensitive and sweet and serious all at the same time, which is really easy in the moment. So I say, uh, maybe we should try another test. <laughs> But I can tell that is not the answer she is going for right now. So I say, look, 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 uh, you know I'm here for you. I'm here with you. And whatever you want to do, you know I've got your back. And apparently your belly. What I'm really thinking is, please say you're not ready. Please say you're not ready. I mean, I don't want her to do anything she doesn't want to do but I do want her to do what I want her to do for what she wants to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Esther sits down. She takes a breath. She takes my hand. She puts it on her belly. She says, I mean, I know we're not ready. I'm too young. You're too dumb. That's a direct quote. I know it's not right right now, but I've always wanted to be a mother. I've always wanted to have a daughter. I say, you'd be a great mother whenever you think the time is right. She says, you know, it's funny. Ever since I thought I might be pregnant, I started thinking about baby names. If it, was a, if it was a boy, I was thinking Dominic. And if it was a girl, Barbara. <laughs> Barbara. Barbara. I never told Esther about my great-grandma before. Uh, last month, I brought her home to meet 
the, my family, to meet the women who raised me. Strong women with old names like Dorothy and Deborah and Francis, my grandma, my mom, my aunt. I'd fallen in love with an Esther, a name so old when you're born it comes with an AARP card. <laughs> I was raised by strong women, women who taught me how to show respect, do my own dishes, say my daily prayers to Audre Lorde and Billie Jean King. It was my Aunt Fran who taught me how to roll a condom onto a cucumber. I was not paying close enough attention, apparently. And it was my mom who first told me about the strongest woman in our family history, the woman who stole the show at her own wedding, my great-grandma, Barbara, who fled Russia and worked in sweatshops and had 12 abortions, all self-performed. No birth control, no clinics on the Lower East Side. She almost died in a tenement bathroom on Avenue C. But she lived. She lived and she fought for women and workers and immigrants and everything a nice socialist Jew used to do. She danced in the streets. She danced in the streets when they passed Roe v. Wade. She lived a long, hard, beautiful life like her, Barbara. When Esther said that name, I started to change my mind about what we should do. I said, maybe this mistake wasn't a mistake after all. Maybe we're supposed to have a daughter. She said, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not right now. I still need to become who I am to become a woman. And you, Josh, you definitely need some time to become a man. <laughs> and so a couple weeks later, we went to the clinic. And it was quick. It was safe. When the man with the picket sign outside said he'd pray for Esther's soul, she said, hey, good looking out. I held Esther's hand from when the doctor went in until the doctor came out. And yes, there were tears, pain, sadness, relief, all of the above. When it was done, I asked her how she felt. She said, I feel kind of hungry. Let's go get some lunch. And there were more tears over that meal. But when it was done, she was good and we were good. At the end of the day, it was just another, it was just a Wednesday at a doctor's office. No hangers, no back alley botch jobs. We were able to go on with our lives and graduate. And now, and now today, 10 years later, I'm still with Esther. Uh, yeah, you can clap for that. I do. And uh, she is my wife. She is, she is my midwife wife. Her job is to help bring babies into the world. 
And she helps women find their power, helps them heal, helps them make their own decisions, their own choice. And last month, Esther told me that she's ready now. She wants to have kids. She needs to have a daughter. There are lessons she needs to pass on. I agree, and I know someone else who would too. And we don't have any kids yet, sorry mom. We don't have any news yet, but we're already talking about names. And if it's a girl, there's one name, one heavyweight champ at the top of the list. Thank you. Joshua Healy. Holla when you hear it. Holla. That's right. Snap Judgment Live does not play around. It's go big or go home. And you can experience the nation's top storytellers rocking the Snap stage as if their lives depended upon it. Brand new stories. Friday, November 16th at the IKEA Theater in Mesa, Arizona. And Saturday, November 17th at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles. Get tickets while you can. Don't blame me, Snappers. Tickets right now at snapjudgment.org. When we return, the funkiest man on the planet, Black Thought from the Roots, tells us a secret. Stay tuned. WNYC, welcome back to Snap Judgment live in New York. My name is Lynn Washington. This show is already in progress. And do we have a treat for you? Snap Judgment, live in New York. The uh, next guest, about to welcome to the stage, he's probably responsible more than anybody else for the soundtrack of my middle years. It's a brother who, along with his partner, Questlove, he's taken his band, The Roots, around the world. They now landed as a house band on The Tonight Show. Everything this brother touches turns to gold. Snap Judgment just got a little bit funkier. Please welcome to this stage Tariq Black Thought Tribe. Thank you. I am taking the stage at the Ross Gilder Festival outside Copenhagen, Denmark. There are two acts playing on the main stage. It's my band, The Roots, and it's Bruce Springsteen in the East Street Band. So, we come out, we run through our set, and it was stellar, if I do say so myself. We did a great show. Afterwards, we're in the dressing room, still reeling, talking about how great the show was and how great it was that Bruce and the band stood off in the wings and watched our set in its entirety. And we start asking ourselves questions like, 
Well, what did he think? Was his head moving? Did you, did you see him tapping his feet? And uh, stuff like that. And then in a surreal turn of events, Bruce came into our dressing room and he asked, he said, uh, you guys want to come back out and perform with us during our set? <laughs> Needless to say, of course we want to come back out and perform with you. Mr. Springsteen, uh, what are we going to perform? And he's going through his, his head and he says, uh, uh, maybe we'll do Born to Run, no? Maybe we'll do, uh, let's do Wrecking Ball. And he says, no. Let's do the East Street Shuffle the way we did it with you guys on the show with Jimmy. Great, say no more. We're out there. We're on stage. I'm performing. Bruce Springsteen is right next to me. His lyrics, his lyric sheets are sprawled on the stage at my feet. And he relinquishes his microphone to me and my partner, Kirk Douglas. And we're leaning in to share the mic the same way that Bruce, who's to my right, and Lil Stevie Van Zandt, who's to my left, the same way they lean in to share the mic. That's what me and Kirk were doing, and we're, and we're rocking it. And, um, for me, it was a career high. I've never felt more American. I've never felt, you know. I've, I've never felt like more of a, an ambassador of the arts. And, um... Yeah, it was a career high. I remember thinking to myself, you know, we finally arrived. You know, and this is a feeling that stuck with me well into my arrival the next day at JFK Airport. So we land, coming through customs and immigration at JFK, and the VIP treatment and feeling kind of continues because we're being ushered out of the mere mortal line and into the, into the line where, uh, you know, they have the diplomats into the country. So as we're coming through the diplomatic entrance, I hear a couple people, some are airport workers, others are, uh, you know, just travelers, and they're saying, um, you know, who is he? <laughs> as to say, you know, who am I to be ushered through the diplomat's entrance into the country? So my partner, Questlove, he goes ahead of me, and he's, he's, he's in. He's at the baggage claim now, easy breezy. Um, I'm expecting to come in and do the same, but there's a, a problem. So the gentleman who's looking at my passport, he looks down at my passport, looks up at me, down at the passport, up at me, and he says, uh, surely this is something that's going to be resolved relatively quickly, but you're going to need to step into this room over here on the side. You know, so now I'm at JFK. I'm in the room where folks are interrogated when their name raises a red flag. Enter Officer Courtney. And <laughs> now... I'm not usually the one to prejudge, but Officer Courtney in immigrations at JFK was such an that you could tell with him just sitting there doing nothing. He was a textbook. So I'm sitting in a room with Officer Courtney for what felt like an eternity before he finally looks up and asks, you want to tell me about Lancaster County? And I'm thinking, Lancaster County? Um, I mean, that's where I went to college. 20 years ago, surely there can't be any matter that was left unresolved between me <laughs> and the fine people of Lancaster County, PA. But Officer Courtney says, no, Lancaster County wants you, so you're going to jail. Now, I try to name drop, even though it's something that I never do. I said, hey, I mean, come on, man, I'm just, uh, 
I'm, I'm an entertainer from the late night show with Jimmy Fallon. I just want to get, get back home to my family for the last few hours of the weekend. Surely you can understand that. And he says, nope, you're going to jail. So I asked if I could make a phone call, and he offers to make the call for me. He calls my wife, and there's no answer. So I get to thinking about home and my daughter, who was about six years old and, you know, who wanted to see me uh, upon my arrival home from Europe. I'm thinking about my wife and the rosemary garlic chicken that I asked her to have uh, <laughs> waiting for me when I got back. And um, my wife calls back. Courtney answers the phone. Courtney. And, you know, his answer to all my wife's questions about how come I hadn't returned from the airport yet and what was going on. He just says, your husband's going to jail. Bang. And he hung, hung up the phone. So um, at this point, I feel defeated, deflated. Uh, I'm super confused. And uh, I'm being ushered out of the airport. I'm being paraded in front of some of the same people who a little while earlier were asking, you know, who's he? Now they're asking who's he, but they're asking for a different reason. So I got handcuffs on, I'm taken out of JFK, and before I know it, I'm in Queens County Central Booking Facility, uh, being given what appears to be preferential treatment because I was in a cell that had unlimited local uh, phone access. I had a pay phone in there I could use. It had a, a clean toilet, and it was directly across from the night watch desk where uh, you know the corrections officers were staffed and they, they had to you know watch what was going on so I felt like you know I was in the, the executive suite so to speak <laughs> of this jail in the wee hours of the night a, a corrections officer came and asked me to change cells and he took me from my cushy executive suite into the deeper darker more dank area of the jail where there were less people around and you know there, there was less of a watchful eye being kept and I'm wondering what I did to deserve this downgrade. You know, so I'm there and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And finally the guy comes back and um, I'm, I'm, I'm essentially his captive audience. He begins to, to perform. <laughs> so I'm on one side of the bars, he's on the other side. He's performing his demo for me. And he's explaining to me, you know, that, you know, his name is Darnell McCormick, but his stage name is D-Nails. And he's like, you know, my whole angle is the fact that I'm a corrections officer, but I'm proud of it, see? It's a lot of these other they corrections officers, they try to keep it on a low. So that's gonna be my whole angle. I'm D-Nails, I'm 5-0. You know what I'm saying? Now, I have uh, 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 two options. I could play along and, uh, you know, act as if he was you know, one of the greatest artists I'd ever heard and try and expedite my uh, release. Or I could keep it 100 and just tell him the truth, what I really felt about his music. So, needless to say, I said, hey, man, you sound great. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, man, we should exchange information and when I get out, we should maybe link up and do something, you know? So... We exchange information, and I hear some of the other corrections officers asking D-Nails, who's he? <laughs> and I hear them saying stuff like, uh, hey, it's Will I Am. <laughs> it's, uh, that's, uh, 
That's Mr. Cheeks from the Lost Boys over there. Nah, silly, it's Quest Love. It's two chains. All sorts of stuff. So I sit there, I wait, I wait, and finally I'm released. Um, with no time to spare before duty calls. So it's now Monday afternoon, it's time for me to report to my day job. So I get out, I had a few words with my attorney, and he directed me to the subway. I jumped on the train, ride from Queens, and the train stops in the bottom of Rockefeller Center. I run up the stairs, jump on the elevator, run into Studio 6B, still just totally bewildered. I'm like, you know, what just happened? And before I know it, I'm on stage. I got my signature fedora, a suit jacket, and uh, no, no shoelaces still, no belt. <laughs> but I'm on stage, and Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon makes mention of me in, in his uh, monologue. He says, Tariq Trotter, ladies and gentlemen, from The Roots, give it up, come on. Come on, give it up for Tariq Trotter from The Roots, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm thinking, thank you. I'm thinking, uh, you know, as I look down at the monitor to make sure that I look cool without my laces and my belt, and that you couldn't tell that I just, literally just had gotten out of jail. And um, I'm thinking Tariq Trotter from The Roots. Who's here? Thank you. Snap Judgment, live in New York. All that snapping. But know your wait is over. Brand new Snap Judgment Live Friday, November 16th in Mesa, Arizona. Saturday, November 17th at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. We'll bring the funk, the passion, the world's top storytellers, and the band Bells Atlas will make you believe in magic. Get tickets at snapjudgment.org. But Glenn, I wanted tickets, but I didn't act fast enough. Don't call me. Get tickets while you can for the snapper in your life, snapjudgment.org. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news, because it got way too much funk, too much soul, too much life, and too much joy for the news these days. Even still, this is WNYC. For all the newest episodes of Spooked, go to luminarypodcast.com or download the Luminary mobile app.